Through the years, I've been next to some folks who faced treachery. Yes, they've been cheated. I remember a roofer who in the midst of putting on a big Christian Ed wing at our church where I was serving, he came forward and said, I want to donate my labor to the Lord. You let me put that roof on. And so we talked to the general contractor we had hired. And uh, when everything got all done, we realized that what happened was the, uh, we paid the same for the roof that we were going to pay to have the general contractor uh, oversee doing it. <laughs> he just took the, uh, the margin that the brother was offering to the Lord in the job. He just put that in his pocket and... Uh, it didn't help us at all. It, it was a moment of treachery that we didn't realize till after the whole thing was over. I've been next to brothers and sisters who never imagined that they would be in the circumstance that they were in, facing a nasty divorce proceeding. I've been around friends who had their ID stolen treacherously. One friend had it stolen twice, kind of back to back. It was a mess, getting everything taken care of. I've been around estate squabbles. I've been around money lent to others that was never repaid, though the promise was repayment. I've been around investment fraud. Remember a widow who her husband set her up to be okay after he died, but the steward of their wealth was doing nefarious things, and alas, it was found out there was Nothing in the bag that was to be held for her for those years. I remember a, a friend's daughter was at college and got a phone call where the person identified themselves as an agent with the IRS and noted uh, arrears in payment that was immediately due even as he articulated his access to her accounts that he could take the money out immediately that day, shut them, freeze them, or she could pay him on the phone right then with her credit card number and flummoxed and out of sorts, walking across campus, she whips out her credit card and drops a big bone down and only to come to find out it was a great scam. Remember a friend who loved muscle cars and he had a couple of them in his garage, they were nice ones, and he'd been looking at this one online and he just looked at it for too long and thought, I've gotta have that, I'm gonna have that. And so he began to negotiate and had a lot of back and forth, a lot of questions, had everything answered. And it, it was like, man, this is, this is unbelievable. Look at this thing I'm going to get. He paid for it online and got it through some wire transfer and got the money, only to find out that an Eastern European scam group took his money and all that they had for the car was that picture they had up on the Internet. And he had been had. But there was no way back once the money went out. Note to self, don't do that online, no, whatever you do. Our broken world is full of fraud and treachery. We wish it were not. We can pretend that it's not. But it's part and parcel of our fallen world. Even the ancient Greeks had a vision for this. Sophocles, who wrote tragedies, he said, You must remember that no one lives a life free from pain and suffering. Well, he wrote that about 300 B.C., but a long time before he wrote that, a contemporary of Abraham named 
named Job from the Bible wrote in Job 5, 7, that man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. And what makes these sparks and this trouble most besetting is when the trouble comes from those most close to us. That is, uh, the closer relationally we are to the person who has treacherously dealt with us, the worse it hurts. If it's a stranger, we do not know it hurts. If it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a cousin or an extended family member, it's just like somebody's turned up the rheostat on how the treachery feels. It feels all that worse. Now this morning, I want you to come with me to Genesis 27 as we continue thinking about Esau's life. This grandson of Father Abraham, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. This morning, I'd like to go two different directions as we look at Genesis chapter 27. It's a long chapter. I won't read the whole thing to you. I encourage you to come back and noodle through it this week. I want to go two different directions. I want to look at this one episode in Isaac's family. And spoiler alert, it's a mess. It's a mess. And secondly, I want to face the lie that we need to face. The lie is, well, I'll, I'll never run into treachery. Now, by the way, the point of this message is not to raise levels of cynicism and pessimism and skepticism. That's not the point of this message. In fact, we will end looking at Jesus, who is the one most worthy of our trust and heals us from those maladies that are so prevailing in our day. We live in a cynical age. We live in a skeptical age. We live in a pessimistic age. And life in a broken world, if you let it, will take you down those roads to stay. So we need to face this lie. We want to live in a holy way, realistic. Now let me tell you the story and read several verses from Genesis 27. Isaac, the patriarch, is now getting close to death. And he realizes that. And he, he's a good man, he's a meat eater. And he said to himself, before I die, I want to have some of Esau's good meat. Esau was a hunter and a gatherer, and so he plans this out. That's, notice verses 2, 3, 4 of Genesis 27. My son, and he answered, here I am. Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And so 
Rebecca hears this. Isaac's wife. Her response then is to run an end around Isaac's plan and send Jacob into Isaac in the place of Esau and get the blessing that Isaac has just said he wants to give to Esau. So notice verses 8, 9, and 10. Here's her instructions. Now, therefore, my son, we'll come back to those pronouns, obey my voice as I command you, go to the flock. This is Rebekah, the mother, to the son, Jacob. Go to the flock and bring me two good goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob says to Rebekah, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he goes and brings them in. They prepare this food. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jacob goes in. He has Esau's clothes. His mother has wrapped some, uh, you know, Esau was like Sasquatch, just a hairy dude, kind of an animal-like dude. And so uh, uh, Jacob uh, was not that way at all. He called himself, smooth, I'm smooth-skinned. So she, they, they actually put some uh, animal hair on him so that in his dim vision and his waning faculties, Isaac would reach out and feel him and think maybe he was there. Look at verses 28, 27 and 28. I'm, I'm sorry, before that, we need to look at uh, verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, now notice how uh, if you really want to try to be super deceitful, you bring God in on the deceit. Notice what he says. Oh, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. A feigning piety that wasn't present. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him. Now, can you imagine if you'd had uh, a heart monitor on him? You know, I'd like to listen to his heartbeat at that point, you know. Did his heart rate increase? Did his blood pressure go up? I mean, can you imagine deceiving your father in such a way? And then what would you have thought when he said this? The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, can you think of articulating this? I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat. And so he ate the food, and then he blessed him. He smelled the clothes and said, you know, you, you smell like Esau, because they were Esau's clothes. 
So the blessing came. Verse 27. See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you and bless be everyone who blesses you. And the Careful reader of the book of Genesis would say, hey, wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot like exactly what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those. So here we have the blessing to Abraham that's passed on to through Isaac, Isaac's son. Enter Esau right after Jacob feigning to be Esau, has left the room. There are six scenes in this story, this history. We'll come back to that. Esau walks in. Let my father arise. I'm reading from verse 31. Let my father arise and eat of the son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then? that hunted game and brought it into me, and I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, verse 34, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me, alas, O oh my father. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaac was quick to figure it out. Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Oh, he begged him. He opens up with a bitter cry, exceedingly great and bitter cry, the text says there in verse 34. But he does get to a blessing. But it's interesting. It's a fascinating blessing. It's Cain-esque blessing. You're going to have the blessing of being a wanderer. What kind of blessing is that? Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. By the way, you know where you want to dwell? You want to dwell right next to the fatness of the earth. And away from the dew of heaven on high. You want to dwell away. You want to dwell next to the dew of heaven that's watering the crops. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Hear the word of the Lord. Esau from that point on was on a mission to kill his brother. There were homicidal thoughts. Rebecca, continuing the deceit, convinces Isaac, we need to send Jacob away to marry a non-Canaanite woman because these Hittite women are harassing me. Notice the end of chapter 26, the tyranny of Esau's Hittite wives, and the end of Genesis 27, the tyranny of the Hittite wives. There are two parentheses within which this story goes down. It's a tawdry story. Now, number one, let's think in this direction. Isaac's family imploded from the inside with each member vying to manage the blessing of God. Everybody wants the blessing of God. Everybody in Genesis 27 want the blessing of God. What you have in Genesis 27 is a silent cage match, an egocentric mess. Everybody has an angle. Let's notice four keen observations. Observation number one, in the six scenes of this history, Isaac's family is never all together. 
if you go through each scene and you look at each scene, please know they're never all together. There's a sociologist at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology, MIT, who has said that the great thing that characterizes our age is that we are alone together. Alone hyphen together. Uh, we've never been more digitally connected. Doesn't that make us together? No, it doesn't. Uh, we are alone while being together. And then you put on top of that COVID in the last two years. And what, what is that? This alone together stuff can seep into a marriage. Let's just stop and it can seep into families. Let me just stop and ask you, are you alone together in marriage? It's not a good place. Let me take something very simple that used to be so understood as a part of the warp and woof of every family. Do you have meals together as a family? You say, Eric, look at our calendar. It looks like the flight schedule for O'Hara Airport. I'm not a parent. I'm an air traffic controller negotiating everybody's schedule in the million different ways. Are you kidding? Together as a family, I want you to know, and you know this, but I'll remind you, this is how long kids stay in our home. That's it. Here's my encouragement, something real simple. Be together during this. Fight hard to sit down and have a meal a day with your people. What's very telling is in these six scenes, the four of them are never all together. Now, the second keen observation is that all four family members invo involved are equally at fault. You say, who's the real rascal here? Who's the real rascal? How about this? Everybody. What do you make of that? 2 Corinthians 4.2 says this. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. All four family members involved in this story are equally at fault. Let's take Isaac. You know what's driving Isaac in this chapter? His belly. He loves meat. He loves meat more than I believe he's interested in blessing his son, although he does believe that his days are few, he's dying. It's, it wasn't uncommon for people dying to bless others around them. But here is Isaac, and the pronouns that are used here are fascinating. Look at verse 1. What does he say to Esau? He says, my son. Look at verse 5, as Moses tells the story and writes it, when Isaac spoke to his son. Look at verse 6, Rebekah spoke to her son. We've talked before about that line that uh, in 
Genesis 25:28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, and they played favorites, and favorites, favorite playing just ruined their family and how they related. So Isaac's driven by his belly. Now he knows from the time that the oracle of God came when Rebekah was pregnant, we already looked at that, that the older was going to serve the younger. And in a way that was contrary to the normal and usual, the firstborn was not going to be prominent. Abraham's promise was going to come through Jacob, not Esau, as God ordained it. And God told Isaac and Rebekah that. Two chapters later, what's going on here? Isaac's saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to bless Esau. So you say, well, boy, Isaac, he seems to be the one. What about Rebekah? What do you make of that? How'd you like your wife treating you in your final days when you're going blind, you're losing your faculties and your senses? And, you know, uh, uh, how's your wife treating you? <laughs> She's deceitfully trying to outwit your diminished capacity and have history turn out the way she wanted it. A treacherous ruse before a blind and dying husband. Wow. Vying for her favorite. Now, how about Jacob? You say, oh, Jacob's a real rascal. He knew that he wasn't the firstborn. Yeah, but Jacob had traded for the birthright. He got the super good end of the deal. He traded the red stew for the firstborn son's birthright. And yet he would go in and boldface lie to his dad. And his dad's pressing him. Oh, yeah, God, God made this hunt successful. Yeah, it's me. It wasn't me. It was you, Jacob, the schemer. Throw ethics out the window. Look at 20, chapter 27, verses 11 and 12. He has a moment where he wonders. Jacob said to Rebekah, Behold, my brother Esau's a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring curse upon myself and not a blessing. By the way, don't forget, and we're getting ahead in the story with this comment, but Jacob thought about how terrible it was to be cheated for the next 14 years as he worked for Laban and tried to get out. So day after day, he was reminded of how bad treachery feels. The law of sowing and reaping. But what about Esau? Eric, you've entitled this message, Hoodwinked by Insiders. Esau was really dismantled. Well... You know what? Esau knew he gave away his birthright in chapter 25. And yet the, the first message in this series, Hebrews chapter 12, what does the author of the book of Hebrews accents the fact that Esau was unwilling to face what was true about himself? He had spurned the blessing. But he sought the blessing anyway. You get to verse 34, and he's crying out with a loud voice, and he's bitter about how it has all gone down. In that sense, you could argue, hey, he wasn't hoodwinked by an insider. He was trying to get what was not rightfully his at that point anyway. You know what? Everybody's thinking of himself. Life doesn't turn out well when that is the central calculus for everyone. 
The third insight is this. Sin in one's house always brings heartache and misunderstanding. You say, Eric, what's going on here? Every person is sinning against the other person, and what it brings is a mess of estrangement. Everybody's estranged from everybody. All four suffered because of their unbelief and disobedience. Sin ruins things. Sin separates people. It's tragic. Jesus has called us to another way to live. Fourth insight is this. Everybody wants God's blessing on their own terms. We want the blessing of God on our terms. Here is God's blessing to Abraham that comes through Isaac. And it will come down then, again, 27, 29, curses everybody who curses you, blesses everybody who blesses you. You get to chapter 28 and verse 3. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. You become a company of peoples. That sounds exactly like the language of God's promise to Abraham has come to Isaac, and through Isaac it has come to Jacob. Do you realize that God sets the terms of our relating to him? We don't make it up as we go along, but he has set the terms. Our sin puts us at a disadvantage. They were interested in God's gifts, but not in God's ways. Could that be said of me? Could that be said of you? Seeking God and being faithful to him with an honoring life were incidental in their considerations to the fact that they just wanted to get to the finish line of the realization of the blessing. Now let's face the lie. I'll never run into treachery. Followers of Christ have an understanding about the world. They have an understanding about themselves. We are all sinful. And as a result of being sinful, we bump into each other. And the curses come. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But followers of Christ understand the world. There's a holy realism that informs our expectations in life. We are not home yet. We live in a world that is groaning and travailing, waiting to be redeemed. Waiting to be redeemed. Not yet. Now we want to face this lie... I'll never face, I'll never run into treachery. We want to face this lie with three ponderings. Pondering number one, Esau reeled from this incident for the rest of his life. There are two ways to face treachery. One is Esau's way, and it's not a good way. It's a life-altering way. He was never the same after this. He got so hurt. He got so embittered that he got stuck in that moment for the rest of his life. So one way to face treachery is you get stuck. It's life-altering. You will never be the same. I happen to know that some of you have faced terrible treachery at the hands of others. But don't take Esau's route because he got stuck there. He was embittered. The second way to face treachery is accept it. It did happen. The world is fallen. 
We are sinful. We need grace. Accept it. Forgive others. Pour grace on it. And go on and take the next step. And wow, is that hard to do. But it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of Christ. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And they're killing him. Facing treachery is hard. Many of you have faced it. Maybe you're in the midst of it this morning. I've faced it. And when I faced it, as I started into it, I wasn't doing very good. And a friend put his arm around me, and in one piece of counsel, he helped me have hope that I could take another step and move ahead. He said, Eric, this is a bad chapter. Don't make it the book. Turn the page and go on. And at the self-same time, it was validating the fact that this was awful. That it happened. That he recognized it. But he was inviting me to not wallow there in self-pity the rest of my days. But turn the page. Take the next step. And go on. I will always remember what he said. I love that. This is a bad chapter. Don't make it the book. Here's Esau's problem. Esau made it the book. He never got beyond that. He seized, he seethed with bitterness. Ever notice a person who's gotten stuck in a bruising, wrenching experience in life? That's not an academic question. Let's make it more real. Are you stuck this morning? And has God brought you here to open your eyes to hope in the fact that you don't have to be stuck in that malaise the rest of your days? Do you need help walking forward? You say, Eric, I can hardly take the next step. Self-pity will take us in all the wrong places giving it up to the Lord, being generous with forgiveness, just as God has forgiven us, taking next steps with joy. If you need help walking forward, our REACH Biblical Counseling Ministry would love to be by your side, privately, confidentially cheering you on. Esau reeled from this instant the rest of his days. Let's not be Esau. Secondly, the second pondering and facing this lie is that all of us will face the brunt edge of our fallen world, and it hurts. And the closer the person is to us who is the perpetrator of the treachery, the worse it hurts and it affects us deeply. It's why when the people of God hurt each other, it is deeper and cuts deeper than other cuts because we expect so much more out of them. Jesus, I love it. He's so realistic. Luke 17, 1. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Jesus says, you're going to run into each other. And it's going to hurt. When our brother, when we have ought against our brother, we need to release them and forgive them, Jesus said. You ever run into a Judas? Oh, that hurts. Ask Jesus. That hurts bad. 
in a fallen world waiting to be redeemed, we will bump into treachery. This side of the new heavens and the new earth, when God makes everything brand new and the first things of sorrow and suffering and sin and grief, they're done away with. But until we get there, we're going to face stuff. This is not yet paradise. It's a broken world. Sin entered and death came. Now we face a world groaning, travailing, like a woman in childbirth waiting to be redeemed. The people of God, though, are not pessimists. They're not cynical. They are intrepid realists who understand what is actually going on in a broken world. We know from the word of God that this life is not the arena of all of our hopes. Remember those fairy tales? They all ended the same way, and they all lived happily ever after. In this life, we don't live happily ever after realizing all of our hopes. That is in the life that is to come. Remember Peter's challenge in 1 Peter 4.12, think it not strange if you have to face some really tough circumstance. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Have you realized that these afflictions in a broken world can move us? And they can move us in directions away from Christ rather than unto him? So let me ask you this morning, has the moving truck of affliction rolled into your driveway sitting there waiting to move you to some place that Christ doesn't want you to go? Or have the movers already taken you there and you realize this morning as the Spirit of God speaks to your heart that you are in a place that God wants to bring you out of and back to him. I love what uh, is said that no one be moved by these afflictions because it argues that we can face it. And though treachery is a part of the great challenge of living by faith and living for our Lord, and remember, J. Oswald Chambers said a long time ago that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. It's the idea that Satan smuggles into Eve's heart in the garden. And as soon as she thought, God's keeping us from something really wonderful, that's why he said not to take of this fruit. So I'll take of the fruit. And she realized that, well, maybe that was a bad idea because this isn't as wonderful as the serpent said it was going to be. Treachery is a part of the challenge of the Christian life as we walk by faith, undergoing what we do not understand. Well, finally, I love what Matt Chandler says. We all yearn for Eden, and followers of Jesus find him worthy of our trust. Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, says that uh, we're all homesick for Eden. We feel it. We instinctively know a better world and yet are experiencing what we know doesn't fit. Sin, consequence, death, curse. Instinctively, we know the good life. It's as if we have a memory of Eden. We can remember what it was like. We can taste it, and now we yearn for it. Life can be disillusioning and disappointing. 
in a broken, unjust, sinful world. We can actually run high on cynicism. One of the temptations of living life following Jesus after 50 is to become a cynic. To conclude as a cynic that everybody's running on self-interest. In a broken world that can cut us in half, we can lose our capacity to trust and lose our capacity to have hope. Enter Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one on whom we rely, our hope, our Redeemer. Three things are said of him in 1 John, 1 John 1, 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When you rely upon Jesus, when you trust in him, you have integrity at his highest level and one worthy of every vestigial of trust that we would place in him. 1 John 2, 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. As we abide in the light and abide in Christ, there is not anything disillusioning about our levied trust and his deliverance of his promise. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared to take away sin and in him there is no sin one completely worthy of our trust. What cures us from the ails of a treacherous world is a dependable Savior upon whom we can trust and rely. He's never treated us with treachery. A treacherous world takes away our capacity to trust others, but we can trust in Jesus, this perfect one in whom is no sin, this one who loved us and gave himself for us, the cure for cynicism, the cure for... Skepticism, this cure for pessimism, is an encounter with the integrity of the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ, the character of Jesus makes it sweet to trust in him. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I love the old hymn lyric from All the Way My Savior Leads Me. The lyricist stops and asks a rhetorical question. Should I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? And the answer to that rhetorical question is absolutely not. He's worthy of our trust. So the MO for followers of Jesus is to trust him, find our joy in who he is, and take the next step. Jesus is the door to paradise. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And as we follow him, he's worthy of our trust. He is faithful to his word. And he is the remedy for the bruises and the disappointments and the disillusionment that we face in this old broken world that is waiting to be redeemed. Will we face some bumps and bruises? Absolutely. But we face them trusting in a sinless Savior who's perfectly adequate to both deliver on his promise and provide all that we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, we say with the 24 elders and the angelic host bowing in Revelation 4 and 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You are worthy, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, help us live like it. Lord, it's hard to live in a broken world. We get hurt. I 
pray for anyone who is stuck this morning, that you would speak to their heart right now and they would hear you beckoning them to repent from self-pity, to pour grace on the undeserving and be generous with forgiveness and give himself to you. Pray for those, Lord, this morning who just hurt. They've been treacherously dealt with. And in the midst of the treachery, they've wondered, where is God? What's going on? Shepherd them forward. Hear our prayers as we talk to you. And affirm what is true about you. You are worthy. And we declare that this morning even as we invite you to work afresh in each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.